Well, hello and welcome to a very special event that we're doing here tonight with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I'm really excited. We have a number of people that are joining us tonight that have uh, been uh, been through or experienced restraint and seclusion. Uh, and what we're hoping to do tonight is have a conversation uh, so that people understand uh, what has happened and what the impact is of restraint and seclusion and what we can do to change things. So a little different format this evening, but I'm really, really excited to have all of the, the very special guests that we have joining us. So I'm going to go ahead and bring our entire panel up on, on screen here, and we will inter have them introduce themselves as we get everyone here. Um, but I'm really, really super excited uh, to have everybody joining us tonight. So let me begin by saying, Julie, Mina, Sam, Tom, welcome. Thank you. Um, thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, you know, this takes a lot of uh, a lot of courage to, to come on here and and share your experiences. And I, I know from having conversations with each of you that you're all dedicated not only to uh, sharing your story, but really to helping to bring about change. And that's so important. Um, you know, we were talking about this as, as we got started here tonight. But, um, you know, oftentimes when 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 bad things happen, you, you're eager to move on and get away. But when things like this happen, they can lead to trauma and that can stay with you. And, um, you know, coming back and having the courage to uh, really help bring about change so that uh, hopefully um, we're able to change things for others um, is really commendable. And, and I appreciate all of you uh, and your willingness to have this conversation tonight. I do want to let you know, um, before we introduce the guest, um, you know, this is a difficult conversation and it takes a lot of courage to, to come here and do this. Um, and I want to remind all of the guests that, you know, again, if at any point this is difficult, uh, I don't want you to feel that you, you, if you don't, if you need a break, feel free to, uh, feel free to turn your camera off, anything that might be necessary. Uh, I know this can be, um, be difficult and, and I appreciate that. Um, but again, thank you so much. So let me introduce everybody and then we'll go through and, and have everybody introduce themselves in a little bit more detail. So we have with us this evening, we have Julie, uh, Mina. Tom and Sam uh, coming from various parts of the country. And what we're going to do is let everybody introduce themselves briefly and tell you a little bit about who they are. Uh, and maybe maybe if you'd like to share kind of what part of the country you're from, uh, you're welcome to do that. Uh, and then we're going to get into sharing your stories a bit. So I'm going to start up here, Julie, with you. And I think I've probably known you the longest out of, out of everybody here. And as I was, was thinking about that, um, you know, it's been it's been three years, probably. You've yes. been, I think you've been part of our community, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, for about as long as we've been a community. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget one of the first times that you reached out. And, you know, you reached out and, and you were telling me that you wanted to do something to help uh, influence a change. And you actually then decided to um, go to a board of education meeting and speak in front of your uh, board of education where you had attended school. And, and I've always had so much um, respect and, and admiration for, for your courage to do that. So really excited to have you. So Julie, if you want to introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Guy. And yeah, that was the bravest thing I've ever done, especially considering it didn't work. Um, but, um, you know, my way of dealing with the trauma of uh, restraint and seclusion that I experienced in a very affluent and well-resourced school district in the main line of Philadelphia is that I could not get rid of it. I was not able to forget about it. And so 
I had to live with it and I'm trying to drag everyone down with me. <laughs> um, and for much, much of my life that was doing so negatively, but now I'm trying to do so positively by telling people that I'm not going to shut up about this until no one has to experience it again. So those of you who know me have probably uh, seen this a lot on my social media. Um, and you're probably here because I told you to come um, and you're in the right place. So thank you. And if you told them to come, I'm sure they're here because, you know, you're the kind of person that when somebody tells you to do something, you do it. And and keep in mind, you know, with all these things, you know, we feel sometimes like we're not successful. You know, you go to the Board of Education, do things like this. Um, but, you know, these are not um, simple things to change. And I think every time we take a step, every time we do something, you know, we're, we're heading towards progress. So um, I, yeah. I am sure that we will at some point be successful in what we're trying to do here. So thank you for that introduction. Uh, and I will let you know if you hear it, I've got a storm coming down in the background now. Uh, we had the uh, remnants of the hurricane move through uh, last night, but there seems to be another storm brewing here. So hopefully that doesn't mean any power outages or anything. So if anything happens, <laughs> it's not for dramatic effect. Uh, Samina, <laughs> why don't you tell us about you? And I know we, we've had a, a chance to talk as well. Uh, and I know that you are you are uh, lately have been one of the most active members of our, our community uh, on Facebook and have been very involved in, in kind of sharing, um, you know, your, your thoughts and things. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience here? Hi, my name is Mina. And and we all and I know that my real name is Jennifer. So anyway, my name is Mina and I, I wish to be an aspiring artist slash creative writer. And the reason why I'm here to tell you my story is because I, I had a traumatic experience being restrained in a quiet room when I was growing up as a child in the Hudson Valley with, with, a cross, with, uh, with the arms crossed and wrists held, which kind of annoyed me the most. So. I'm here to tell you not to not only to share my story, but to also spread the word, spread the word of awareness, saying that restraint and seclusion must be banned. And I'm here for that. I'm here for social change, and I'm here for my, I'm here for my younger self. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mina, and and really excited to have you here tonight. Uh, Sam, why don't we go to you? And, um, you know, I've, I've gotten a, a good chance to, to know you. And recently you've agreed to kind of help out with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint as well, uh, which is fantastic. And of course, we had a chance to interview you uh, once before. Yep. Um, and, and that was a fantastic experience. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, tell the audience a little bit about who you are? Hi, I am Sam Maloney and I am from Rochester, New York, and I am a restraint and seclusion survivor. Um, I had a tra traumatic experience uh, up until five years old until I, was until I was 14. I got out of school when I was 14. And um, I, it was just an unfortunate thing that I had to go through, you know, throughout the years and stuff. And, you know, it was just horrible. I don't I don't want anyone to basically like go through this. And I I'm pretty sure people are st like kids are still going through this, which breaks my heart. It really does because the the stuff that I've went through, you know, reminds me of the kids that are still going through this and stuff. And um, it's it's just horrible. I hate to say it, but it's just horrible. But 
Um, but I also am a photographer, aspiring photographer from Rochester, New York. And um, just, I started photo uh, photography at uh, the age of 10 and I am now 21 and um, I'm building my business and uh, just aspiring just to be myself and, you know, share that with others. But yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sam. Uh, and Tom, I know we just met fairly recently um, and you, you shared your story and background with me. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's really tough about this is is to realize, you know, how long some of these things have been going on. You know, we've got a group here that has been in school at different times uh, throughout the, the last several decades. And mm -hmm. to know that, you know, what what happened to, um, you know, you, Tom, you know, has been happening to others ever since then. Uh, it really brings that urgency of us needing to do something, needing to change. I mean, uh, I, I know, um, you know, from talking to you, how how traumatic the impact has been of this. And, you know, we, we've got to do what we can for, for you know, the, the current generation of kids and, and trying to stop all of this. So, Tom, why don't I let you introduce yourself? But thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, uh, I'm Tom McRae. I'm 48 years old. I live in Rockville, Maryland, which isn't too far away, away from where Guy is. Um, I, in the mid-80s, um, I ended up in special education. Uh, I was incorrectly placed in special education. Um, because of trauma I had experienced in school prior to that, um, and then I was further traumatized by every time I said I'm being abused, I don't belong here, um, they would lock me in the quiet room to try to convince me that I had to accept that I was just like every other student there. There was no difference between me and the nonverbal autistic child down the hall. Um, at first, I, I, uh, I took it with a grain of salt. Um, I'll never forget the first time I was locked in the quiet room. They didn't realize that they had mounted the doorknob from the inside. So I had a dime in my pocket, and I unscrewed the bolts and popped the door open and just stood there looking at the teacher. Uh, the second time, I started to pop the hinge pins out of the door because it was hinged on the inside. And uh, so I, I had a, I took it kind of playfully at first because there was nothing else I could do. Nobody was listening. But after about two years of that, um, I, I started experiencing blackouts. And I was only 10 or 10 years old when it started, 10 or 11, yeah. And I kept this all hidden deep inside. I dropped out without ever completing the ninth grade. And now in my 40s, I just recently started talking about what happened to me. And I'm surprised to see not only did it happen to other people, but it's still happening to this day. How is it okay to do it to people who didn't have a voice? I had a voice. I could speak up for myself. There's so many children that's happening to who don't have a voice. And uh, I would like to eventually advocate for others, but I've actually just started treatment for PTSD and I've been informed I need to get stable with myself first before I can actively participate in anything such as uh, CASA, for example. I, I think one of our panelists is, is you know, active with CASA. But yeah, um, so I'm a work in progress. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. 
really appreciate you um, coming, you know, coming and, and sharing your story today. Um, you know, it, it's hard. And, and even many years later, I mean, this is, you know, we, we often say that trauma is, you know, trauma lasts a lifetime. And, um, you know, this is why it's so important for us to do all that we can to, to change what's happening. Um, so, uh, you know, I appreciate the, the round of introductions there. And I know each of you have shared you know, a little bit about who you are. And some of you started to go into a little bit of your background uh, with restraint seclusion. I want to give you a little bit more of an opportunity to talk about your own background uh, with restraint and or seclusion. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about some, uh, you know, questions. We'll talk about, um, you know, what's, what's coming up and what we can do to help influence change. So uh, if I can, I'm going to ask a couple of you to kind of share more about your story. Uh, and, and Julie, I'm going to start with you again, if you don't mind. Um, thank you very much. Yeah. So um, I, my uh, disability is, um, back then we called it muscular dystrophy. Nowadays we're calling it Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It is entirely a uh, physical disability that impacts uh, chronic pain and fatigue um, in my muscle function. And so that was very hard to live with as a child, but it did not um, impact my ability to socialize uh, beyond, you know, whether I could get, get up and out there, um, nor did it impact my ability to learn. Uh, my third grade teacher decided that this was not true, um, that um, my uh, physical disability and what it meant for uh, that, um, I couldn't, you know, do everything that all the other kids did meant that I was not a good student and needed to be punished for that. But she did this without laying a hand on me, which was interesting. So I became what some people would, I would later learn um, was called emotionally disturbed. And um, that sent me to a different school in the public school district that had an emotional support program, um, which was actually a behavioral support program, which was not what I needed because I was traumatized, but really what I needed was a fresh start because I couldn't go back to that other school. Um, in this behavioral support program, they used, um, restraint, um, not as much as you, uh, as other schools use it, not to the point that people died, um, but mostly seclusion on me. And there were these two padded cells they called the cool down room, uh, which were in the hall, which was a public hall. So um, the kids in the music room and outside could hear um, us uh, being dragged in screaming. Um, they use the cool down rooms as a behavioral intervention, as well as a punishment, or just whenever de-escalating a situation was way too much work. Um, and that was a lot. Um, the worst part is that years later, I asked my mom if they told her every time that I went into the cool down room. She said I only went in uh, three or four times. This is not true. Um, so not only did they uh, lie to her, but they put me in there a lot. Yeah, um, and we, we find that happens commonly. We find yes, that it does. You know, parents sometimes don't even know that their kids are being restrained and secluded in school. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when they are reporting, um, there's often a lot of underreporting. Yeah. And so I got out of that school, and went back to the old school. This was all in the same public school district um, in the main line of Philadelphia, which is a very well-resourced affluent public school. So they can't say they don't have the resources when they do. They just didn't put them in the right place. In sixth grade, I was um, restrained and secluded on two separate occasions by none other than the principal of the middle school in response to a dysregulated episode, which I cannot stress enough was completely nonviolent. Um, my meltdowns were just very loud, maybe a little scary, but I made no threats. All I did was sit in my wheelchair and cry. And on both of these occasions, she uh, felt the need to, um, by herself with her very large hands, uh, restrain me into my wheelchair just in case, you know, maybe I would move or something. Um, and not only did she do this once, she was told not to do it again. 
she did it twice. And that was uh, the straw that broke the camel's back in getting um, the school to send me to another um, private school that was actually able to handle me. Um, so the second time that she did that, my mother um, filed a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights, which expedited the process in giving um, me the money that I needed to go to this other school. Um, the price of that was that my parents signed non-disclosure agreements and uh, can't talk about this for a variety of reasons, but you can't bind an 11 year old to a contract. So I am here today to tell my story. I've been waiting for this day for over a decade. I'm 23 now. Um, and yeah, I, and the worst part about this though, is that, you know, I said that I've always been living with this trauma. I've never really tried to put it away. The problem that I have with it is that I have to live like this every single day for the past over a decade. And the people who did this to me, who are white women with master's degrees, get to sleep at night. And that's not okay with me. And I don't wish torture upon them, but I need them to stop. And I need them to stop today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Julie, thank you for, for sharing that. And um, I mean, it, it, Unfortunately, you know, I hear a lot of these stories, you know, we talk to people from across the country, um, you know, in, in, in lots of different positions, some that are going through this now, some that have gone through this, you know, in, in years ago or decades ago. Um, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to to realize that that, you know, people were doing these things that are so incredibly harmful to children uh, in the name of of education, in the name of help, in the name of um, yeah, it, it's really horrendous. Yeah. Um, and you know, they, they say it's because of education. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's because of laziness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these white women with master's degrees from a very, one of the richest school districts in Pennsylvania really don't feel like deescalating and don't realize that the consequences for throwing a child by her joints and her hair and her clothes into a padded cell the consequences for that are permanent. Mm -hmm. And I am very lucky, however, that I was not restrained in some ways that other people were, that they only, they kept it to my wrists um, right, because I had right. severe, severe um, respiratory issues at that time. And if they put me in a prone position, I would have died. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and maybe then they would have taken it seriously, but fairly than ever. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, there have been far too many deaths related to restraint. Uh, there have been deaths related to seclusion. And, and despite that, um, you know, there, there's often a hesitation to change laws. Um, and of course, the, the one big problem here is that we don't have consistent law across the country. We don't have federal legislation today that, that addresses the use of restraint and seclusion in schools. And as a result, every state has their own set of rules or, or laws that govern it. And, uh, you know, things are, are very uneven. And even in states that do have better laws, we still find kids being restrained and secluded when they shouldn't be. Um, yeah. So it really is tough. Mm -hmm. um, Another thing, um, sorry, do you mind if no, I- No, go, go ahead, go ahead, yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was um, just about to turn 21, I discovered um, the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint and I uh, took that, um, I, I used that as inspiration to confront the school board about that and warn them about CASA, give them a friendly warning so they can't say that they didn't know about it. Um, with uh, three quarters of a bachelor's degree in English, I researched their policies, the state policies and all that. And their their policies align with what the state says. That doesn't mean anything. Right, right, right. Um, and they don't know that. Um, so these fat cats in the school district um, said, our, uh, thanks for sharing. We're sorry this happened to you. Our policies align with the state. Goodbye. Right, <laughs> and right, I, and right. they missed the point entirely. So. Right. right. 
it didn't work, but that's why we need to uh, get this law passed because this is happening under their noses and they're okay with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the taxpayers are okay with it too. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there's a history of a lot of um, laws that have been in place in the this country and others. Um, and and because it's a law doesn't mean it's right. doesn't mean it's just doesn't mean it's ethical doesn't mean it's okay. Doesn't mean it doesn't harm people. And, um, you know, I, I hear you with that. I mean, you know, um, often their concern is about being compliant with what the law says. And, and how about we do better? How about we do better than what the law says? How about we acknowledge that, that the laws can harm people? Well, let, let me go on for a minute and talk to Mina about your experience. Um, you want to share a little bit of your experience with us and, and how, um, you know, your experience with restraint and seclusion? Um, of course. Well, my personal story, it all started when I was a child growing up in a Hudson Valley, most likely in upstate New York where I attended, where I was restrained physically and secluded in a quiet room, like at some times. The, the one school in, in Kingston, New York, which was the children's annex at first, and then another, another school, which was an elementary school in New Paltz, New York. So sometimes I was, I was physically restrained with arms crossed, wrists held, and sometimes legs restrained. Whenever I had meltdowns in a quiet room, which was, de which was depicted as a room with no windows and some blue padded, some, just some blue pads around the walls. And I was restrained by most likely teachers, teacher's assistant or Sometimes staff, when, whenever I had a meltdown, I've had meltdowns before, which, which was, which, which could be a, which could be a trigger as in childhood trauma. So there I've had childhood trauma after having that experience being physically restrained in a quiet room. And I even, I even wrote I even wrote a story about myself about my whole life whether it be in the journal or on a blog and I even witnessed someone most likely children I I've known someone in my life most likely a friend of mine from when I was in children's annex in Kingston New York They've had experience, they have the same experience with being restrained and secluded in a quiet room, which I felt was possibly, which I felt was the worst, the worst case scenario when it comes to like such trauma experience. And I really wish that if I had the opportunity to share my story publicly about my own life and, and why I believe that restraint and seclusion would should be banned because restraint and seclusion as in quiet rooms make things worse for children especially someone i know uh someone i know in my life in children's annex in houston new york i would have i would have reminded myself that anyone who is highly responsible or held accountable for restraining me and secluding me in a quiet room should be warned and should be well aware that I'm just in it for, so I'm just in it for change 
So that way, if I were to voice my support in CASA, as in Keeping All Students Safe Act, I could be a voice to anyone who is comfortable sharing their stories. So that way they don't have to face the trauma or like they don't have to face, they don't have to face the stigma they're dealing with when it comes to society. So my dream, my dream is one day that one day to inspire others, most likely anyone who survived restraint and seclusion like my younger self to like share their stories like I did in a way to break that stigma. I can't hear you. I should know better, but with the thunder, with the thunder, I turned off my mic for a second. Um, I was gonna say, I should, I should definitely know better than that. But what I wanted to say, I mean, is that you are, you are already on that journey of inspiring people. Um, you know, I appreciate you being here tonight and, and inspiring people with your words. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, you're a writer as well, and we would gladly uh, publish something from you if you want to share a written story. Uh, also, um, really appreciate you you coming here and, and sharing this. Um, but you you all are an inspiration. This is not an easy thing to do. And your your willingness to do this and your your willingness to try to help influence change for others, I mean, is just so meaningful. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. No problem. So, Sam, uh, I know that you had a, a chance previously on our, our um, one of our Facebook Lives to share a bit of your story. But um, would you mind sharing a little bit of, of your story? Yeah, of course. Um, when I was first restrained, I was five years old and I, I got kicked out of um I think kindergarten when I was five and because the uh the principal was uh pregnant with her kid and um then I got it we got a uh a change in um principles and they're like enough is enough you basically okay you're done you're out and then I moved on to another school and um that's when the first restraint happened and this is in the timeline when my own my mom had cancer so she couldn't really do anything and um this happened uh all the way up in, uh, until I was 14 I got out of school when I was 14 and um you know prone restraints getting uh thrown in closets without any padding was just pure concrete in the closet since of no padding at all is on the top floor and uh, and grabs me by my legs and my arms and just just toss me in there i i could have had a concussion and passed out and died i could i really could have I'm like that's what i cannot stress this enough and that's what really set me off and stuff when i think i was like 10 years old and um this would happen constantly, even to my fellow students and stuff that were going to schools with me. And they had these, um, we usually had these original desks uh, that were just not walled off. They weren't walled off the prone distractions, like prevent distractions or whatever. But they changed one day we came into class and we basically like, uh, we're like, what is this? Like, why are we be, how are we being distracting? So they're like, you're just being distracting. And it's up to other students. They'd not be able to do their homework. But 
that's what you being a distraction in my opinion being a distraction to other students is not really a bad thing because you're talking to your fellow students and stuff while you're doing homework and stuff and they do this stuff to prevent you from talking to other students and like just and it just drives you like it, it leads to like outbursts and stuff because you're getting sick of this and you're like okay i'm done with this and um that led to me um i had behavioral issues and stuff when i was i uh, good thing that i wor worked through them and stuff over the years you know i still struggle with that you know when i'm doing my own work with photography sometimes i get frustrated with it and i have to work myself through that and stuff um and to have that childhood uh when i was uh, all the way up until i was 14 when i was five years old all the way up until i was 14 i uh you know i still have to work with it i'm gonna probably have to work with it my whole life and you know having these like um trying not to have like it like an outburst because you know that reflects on my image onto other people and stuff and um you know most importantly being professional with other people and um i support casa and uh, guy stevens is what, what he's doing and stuff i really appreciate it and like it's amazing what you know all of us are doing right now to voice have our voices heard and i think that's the most important thing ever like just to have and i hope that you know other people and other people's kids when they grow up or when they are ready to have their voices heard be heard speak out just i highly i highly advocate it like just do it if you feel like you need your voice heard just do it yeah just get yourself out there yeah, and it's not easy, right? It's not easy necessarily to do this, but no, it's it's important. You know, it's important because you know the impact that you can have, and we heard this from Julie, and we heard it from from me, and we're hearing it from you as well. the The impact that you can have is potentially, I mean, could honestly potentially save a life. I mean, if we're yeah. able to raise awareness about this and and help to bring about change related to this it really could save lives. And, and I mean, it's that critical. So Sam, you know, the, the work that, that you've been doing, and I know you've also done a lot over, uh, over the years to raise, um, um, you know, kind of, um, related to autism acceptance, uh, yeah. and, uh, accept, and, and, and in fact, can, can, I, can I actually, yeah, yeah, I'd love to that what that. I'm doing. Yep, yep. Uh, so we're trying, me and my mom are trying to, we're doing a cannon bottle, uh, uh, a return uh thing <laughs> fundraiser cannon bottle fundraiser and um we're trying to change uh the wording from autism awareness to autism acceptance to have more acceptance in the autism community and stuff and um i think that's the most important thing like in our community because most of us don't feel accepted in society right. uh and changing i think that's the first step from um changing it from awareness because you know everyone's aware everyone's aware about autism and what it you know people with autism are talented people they just are that's the truth mm -hmm. and um and most people don't even uh, uh, you know elon musk elon musk uh recently said on live tv on snl he was like thank you for having me on the show the first person to have on uh asperger's and stuff um autism and I was like, whoa, if he can do something like that, maybe I can. 
you know, it, it inspires other people. And, you know, that's why um, I think it's most important to uh, spread acceptance and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that, Sam. And we'll, we'll circle back in a minute. Yeah. Uh, Tom, is, is is there other things that you want to share about kind of your story and, and what happened to you? I mean, um... yeah. Um, first, if I may, I just want to address something that um, Julie said that really hit a hit a chord because uh, <laughs> I it, you said white women with master's degrees can sleep at night. I love that so much because. A couple of years ago, what triggered me to the point where I knew I needed to get help was just before Christmas, uh, my tormentor reached out to me, found me on Facebook, and said, um, are you the Tommy O'Pray that I taught, you know, back then? And I took about a day, and then I just had verbal diarrhea in my response. Everything that I ever wanted to say to her just came out. Of course, crickets. I didn't hear anything back. But that, yeah. that inspired me to actually seek help because I realized, wow, she screwed me up more than I could ever imagine. <laughs> and more than she can imagine, clearly, if she can't take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, my reply, I probably looked like I was detached from reality because I was jumping all over the place, a timeline of over 40, of over 35 years, you know, since I had last seen her. So yeah, but yeah. And uh, I just wanted to uh, thank Sam, by the way, um, for change, for actively trying to change the term from autism awareness to autism acceptance. Another person who changed my life was I was the manager of a local movie theater and I had a very, uh, very articulate, much more than myself, um, young man who advocated for himself as an adult with autism. Hmm. And um, I am just so floored when I look out there today and I see what a group that was once silent in more ways than one, and they have a loud voice. Lawmakers are listening to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, Florida, Florida recently, the governor of Florida recently, it's Florida. <laughs> Come on, it's Florida. If Florida can figure it out, anyone can figure it out. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, Florida. <laughs> of course. Um. Yeah, getting back to my story, though, um, I I said I was improperly placed in special education. I, I've told you some of my story, Guy, and mm-hmm. um, I was traumatized from an early age in school. Um, first with a public school teacher who wrapped my knuckles to tell me to write with my right hand, not my left. Mm-hmm. This was public school in Virginia, by the way. Um, then in first grade, I had a nun who used to hold me back during recess and pour milk down my throat when I was lactose intolerant, saying it's not natural for a young boy not to drink his milk. Despite numerous doctor's notes and the only thing that stopped it was my parents taking me out of school. Um, And then by that time I was sufficiently screwed up beyond belief. And I was 
put in a regular public elementary school up here in Rockville. And uh, of course, there was behavioral problems. Um, my teacher took the wrong tack, encouraged my fellow students to not only shame me for my behavioral problems, but to actually physically assault me as a way to cure it. Um, that was second grade. The third grade, the very first day of school, I never had an opportunity to be in the class. I was told to go to the back of the room every day as soon as I got there, where a cubicle was set up where I was to face the wall every day and not to speak. And um, it progressed from there to them putting me in something they called the resource room, which was basically a room where they stuck all the rotten apples in the school. When I say rotten apples, I, I mean kids who were obviously traumatized, uh, other experiences. I've now realized at least one or two of them were actively being sexually assaulted at home. Oh, gosh. Because wow. some of the games they had us play, which were very inappropriate and I won't even describe here. Um, so there was a lot of violence. Um, and from then, the principal told my parents that I was a troublemaker. I belonged in special education. My parents took me to get me assessed by multiple doctors. Each one had the same response. And I only know this because my parents thought they were being very progressive and they allowed me in the meetings with the doctors and the school administrators. And each one of the doctors who assessed me said, well, Tommy's not learning disabled. He's very bright. He just gets bored easily. And you need to challenge him to keep from behavioral problems popping up. Um, they didn't accept that. They pulled me out of school for two years. Um, and it wasn't until the school system threatened them with jail time for neglect and truancy that they got an attorney. And the attorney pointed out a section of the law, which I think was at 1970 or 72 public law, one, four, seven, I can't remember the number, but it gave the benefit of the doubt to the parents in cases where there wasn't a well-defined uh, designation for a learning disability. So on my IEP, my learning disabled was stated um, something to the effect of doesn't socialize well with his cohorts or his age group. Well, no kidding. I was reading U.S. News and World Report at age 10 um, and didn't play uh, fine and gross motor coordination. Fine motor because I was being forced to write with my non-dominant hand. Um, gross motor. Um, I never got out of the house much. My parents sheltered me, so I never played any sports. Uh, as soon as I started playing sports, that was not a deficit. But I've also taken classes on the uh, psych of LD and neither one were ever considered learning disabilities as far as i could figure so yeah um trauma precipitated behavioral problems which had me labeled as lb mm -hmm. despite not having a diagnosis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and from day one i told my teachers i don't belong here i'm not like these other kids i don't belong here and they initially would segregate me in a side office they give me coloring sheets to color in and they get very upset when they come back and I hadn't colored them in. And I'd say, I'm, I want real work. Teach me math. You know, I want to learn algebra. I, at the time I was teaching myself chemistry with the chemistry set at home. So I needed to learn algebra. They refused to teach me and they saw everything I 
refused to do as a cry for help. Mm. And uh, when they couldn't get me to stop saying I don't belong there, because if you're in a room full of uh, kids of various functioning levels and you start to say, I don't belong here, of course, they're all going to say, I don't belong here either. Yeah, and and some of them are probably very right. I mean, you know, oftentimes we see the kids are, you know, especially when we look at things like uh, emotional, um, you know, um, related situations. Uh, you know, I think a lot of kids end up in, in these situations because they have not had their needs appropriately met along the line. Um, and, uh, you know, much like you, I mean, you, you when, when I talk to anybody almost universally that has had either been restrained and secluded themselves or had a child that's been restrained and secluded, the, the common denominator here is this is a child that has not been appropriately accommodated. This child's needs have not been met um, and, and they've been forced into compliance rather than uh, people that were connecting with them and, under, and being compassionate and understanding what their needs were. Yeah, and um, the one downside it's had on my life, which I it's kind of hard to explain, but, um, literally locking me in that room, which was clean, it was well lit, there was no padding on the walls, but doing it over and over again for a couple of years had a strange effect on me. It split me in two. When I started there, I knew I didn't have a learning disability and I actively asked for help. I told them I was being abused. This was not an appropriate situation. I was articulate. I was able to explain all of this by the time I left that school, I was convinced that there was something wrong with me and they obviously didn't have it right, mm -hmm. but there was something wrong with me that maybe nobody understood yet. And I've lived that way since about the age of 10 and I'm about 48 years old now. And uh, it, it's been difficult because if anyone from an employer to a college professor compliments me or or even in my personal life, uh, friendships, romantic relationships, I'm so terrified they're going to figure out that I'm secretly disabled. And, and I live in this fear, um, and uh, it, it's crippling at times. I've walked away from good jobs. I've been on the dean's list going to the community college full-time and walked away just before finals. And still passed three out of four classes, by the way. <laughs> Walked away because somebody had to grab me by the arm and say, you have to accept you're smart. You have to accept this. And I didn't remember how I got home that day. I just blacked out. And that mm. pattern of behavior that's been going on for decades. For me now. Mm. Well, you know, Tom, and, and, and really everyone, you know, um, I, I'm sorry to hear all of the, the stories that you've shared and all of the experiences that you've had. Um, I'm really honored to have you all here today and, and sharing your stories and 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 making a uh, making a positive difference. Um, you know, it's it's um, it, it really goes, uh, you know, to the impact of all of this and and how you know this trauma is, is something that you know certainly you can you can work through and get support, but but it is something that can be with us forever. And and the way that that can affect. You know, even even self worth and and you know how you view yourself is just so critical. Um, but but thank you all for for sharing your stories. Um, we're going to go into a little bit more discussion here. But you know, I wanted to hit on something that you've all kind of um, maybe mentioned in one way or another. But you know, thinking about the kids that are today most often restrained, secluded, 
and even beyond that, suspended, expelled, uh, exposed to corporal punishment. Um, it's most often children with disabilities. Uh, it's most more likely than not black and brown children. Uh, we also see very young children that this is happening to. And, and many of you have shared your own story about how young you were when this happened to you. Um, but the, the other piece there is, and, and I mean, I think you hit this as well. Um, kids with a trauma history are more likely to be restrained and secluded. And that can be any kind of trauma, not just related to what happened to you at school. But if you've got, you know, kind of a trauma history of your own, um, you know, what we know about trauma, of course, is that trauma can make us hypervigilant. It can make us so we're always scanning our environment, looking for danger. And when you're hypervigilant, um, you are more likely to potentially have distressed behaviors. And behavior is communication. You're, you're trying to communicate something, but when you're in distress and don't feel safe, um, it's difficult to learn. And when people are piling demands on you, when you're having a difficult time, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult. So what we often see is as a child begins to have a, di a difficult time uh, because they are feeling overwhelmed, because they are hypervigilant, uh, what happens is demands get piled on those children. And as more demands get piled on the children, uh, they tend to escalate. And as we escalate, of course, uh, changes occur in our brain. We begin to kind of be uh, more working from our amygdala rather than our frontal cortex. So our, our bodies are responding in a fight or flight response. Um, and, and then, of course, once you enter into that fight or flight response, um, the chance of you getting restrained or secluded or, you know, suspended or expelled or having nothing's happened to you goes up. And, and that feeds into that trauma cycle because you then are re-traumatized. So, you know, we often find kids that are having these things happen to them, um, you know, not only come from a history where maybe they've had some trauma and it can take a lot of different forms. It can be trauma at home. It can be in a generational trauma. It can be, you know, a lot of different things that can give a child a, a, a background. And of course, there's been a famous study called the ACEs study, which was looking at adverse childhood experiences in kids. And, and we find that a lot of kids do have these adverse childhood experiences. And, and these are kids that are often ending up in situations like what we've talked about, where, because of their their background and difficulty, they're more likely to be kind of singled out for, um, you know, having difficulties and, and then having situations escalated. So I'm kind of curious what, what you, any of you think, and I'll open this up and feel free to, to unmute and, and just start. But, um, you know, if any of you have any thoughts on kind of uh, what we were talking about in terms of who's most often affected about the, the impact of trauma, because again, think about this and, and you have lived this, um, you know, I, I think about my son's experience and, you know, the first time somebody physically restrained him, he's certainly not going to feel safe again around those people or potentially in that situation. A and that leads, you know, when you don't feel safe, you can't learn, you can't, you know, so what, what are your thoughts? Anybody have any thoughts on, on trauma or the experience with that? Mina? Um, I was just going to, s I forgot to tell you that you may not, you may or may not know that at the at the early age of three, I had been diagnosed with Asperger's, which is which is much which is a much higher functioning compared to autism on a spectrum. So, for me personally, I felt that being physically restrained, whether it be supine or prone, or like whether it be arms crossed and held into the quiet room, secluded by someone who is a teacher, a staff member, or, or a teacher's assistant, any, anyone like that, you know, to me, I felt traumatized 
And I felt that if I ever see that scene like that, I may, I would never have to see that again. Mm -hmm. So it made me think that I had the opportunity to join the Alliance Against Inclusion and Restraint. So that way I may be a, I may have the opportunity to get involved in sharing messages and, and spreading, to spreading the word of social change and, and encouraging others to, to practice self-care, whether it be healing, journaling, art therapy, anything like that. So that way they, they may, they may be able to share their, their own stories whenever they feel comfortable and if they want to be out of the comfort zone. So maybe I would suggest that instead of, instead of physical restraint and seclusion, as in like quiet rooms, instead of those inhumane practices, I would actually give suggestions to certain kids in school who want to express themselves they like I would highly suggest journaling, art therapy, yoga, or any other self care practice or activity whenever whenever they feel the need to express themselves so that way they could tell their parents that, like I did to my parents, so that way I just wish for a better better and more clear understanding instead of misunderstanding. So that way like that's what I hope for. <laughs> yeah, no, and th th you have a number of great thoughts in there. And, you know, I just wanted to comment on, on kind of the, um, you know, you're sharing, um, you know, we, we find, as I mentioned, that oftentimes, uh, you know, children with disabilities, 80% of the restraints, 77% of seclusions, if you look at our Federal Department of Education's data through the Office of Civil Rights. So we know that there is a tremendous number of children uh, with disabilities that are being restrained and secluded. And, and I would say to you that, that you know, while, again, as, as we kind of have heard talking to everybody here, I mean, there are, there are different disabilities and, and, you know, different children that might end up being restrained and secluded. But we, we certainly see a lot of children, um, a lot of autistic children. Uh, and I would say that they may be, um, they may have high support needs or they may be low support needs. Um, you know, we see children, um, for instance, that are, um, you know, non-speaking um, autistic individuals that are restrained and secluded. And there's a lot of concern there because um, while, while you know, you may have been able to come home and, and say what happened to you, uh, there's a, oftentimes with, with a non-speaking autistic individual, they may not be able to come home and, and say, this is what happened to me. Um, and kids come home with mysterious bruises or injuries. Um, and there's, you know, I, I would say the underreporting that might happen there can be can be tremendous, but, but definitely, you know, the, you know, when you look at the intersection of disability and trauma, uh, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things there as well. Um, and, and I would, I, I would put forward that, um, you know, oftentimes there may be trauma related to disability. Uh, there may be trauma related, whether it's communication or, or, you know, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of intersection there between these things that lead to the kids that are being restrained and secluded. Julie, you look like you had. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, talking about the intersection of trauma and um, restraint and seclusion is that um, when special educators use restraint and seclusion as a behavioral intervention, 
and find that it doesn't work, they keep using it, which defeats the purpose of special education. And you make some mockery of their education and their credentials and of their institution and of their taxpayers, if that is applicable. People restrained and secluded me um, while I was emotionally disturbed and suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder for an entire school year and never once considered, maybe this isn't working. Right, right. And I only got out alive because, you know, I had the verbal capacity to explain what was going on, but I was absolutely certain that no one would believe me. And they were really good at not leaving marks. Mm -hmm. I got out because I started hallucinating from losing sleep. Mm -hmm. That's how I got out three weeks before school ended. And I have spent the past uh, 14, almost 14 years recovering from that. And, you know, part of, um, cause you know, I got an educational agreement to go to a different school and exchange my parents' silence. Um, I spent my entire youth recovering from that. And even there, it was hard for the teachers there, but they knew that, you know, putting their hands on me wouldn't do anything. At least they were mm -hmm. that kind of smart that they realized uh, when they tried something that didn't work, maybe don't do that again. <laughs> and, you know, the restraint and seclusion happens everywhere. And I really, I feel very upset that it happens in a school district as renowned and well-known and affluent as mine, because it's not for a lack of resources that they have mm -hmm. to resort to this. White women with master's degrees, the principal in um, sixth grade who restraint secluded me has a doctorate, is a doctor. Um, it's not from a lack of resources, it's from a lack of creativity. If I were seven years younger, I would say, I would say it was malice. Maybe, maybe it is, right, but I'm right, mature right. enough and have been yeah. through enough cognitive behavioral therapy to consider, um, no, it's just laziness. I'm not able to accept that it was yeah. a lack of resources yeah. because this was a choice. This yeah. was a choice they, they perpetuated for a year for me and for decades for some right. other people who we yeah. have today. One thing I would um, suggest, Julie, um, in, in doing this work, um, one of the things that, that I've come to realize, um, you probably know that I'm a big fan of the work of Dr. Ross Green. Um, and, and Ross Green talks about working with and supporting kids that are that are having a difficult time. And, and, and his model is a, a fantastic model, but it begins with a very simple assumption, which is kids do well if they can. And, and the model goes on to basically say, when, when kids aren't doing well, we need to figure out why, what's getting in their way. Do they have a lagging skill? Do they have an unsolved problem? Um, you know, one of the things that, that I would say, and, and you know, I, I hear you, I think, um, you know, for, my, for myself, when I began advocating, um, I had a lot of anger initially because of what happened to my son. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had to really thoughtfully say, well, gee, how can I, I be effective here? And I knew the anger, although it's, you know, still there to a degree, the anger wasn't what was going to be effective in influencing change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to kind of get a little up, you know, behind me. And I, I know you have had your own journey related to that yeah. as well. But, you know, I, I've also kind of come to the um, belief that, um, you know, teachers do well if they can. And, and, yeah, and what, I, what I mean by that is that um, one of the, I think that the two biggest contributing factors to schools that use things like restraining seclusion heavily and schools that do not uh, is culture and training. And, and what I mean by that is that often um, schools are required to get training in things like restraining seclusion as, as crisis management. Um, but beyond that, what's the culture of the school? How do they look at this? I mean, I came from a county, uh, one of the smaller counties in my state, but they were one of the top users of restraining seclusion. 
why, what was different about our county than the, the counties that surrounded us. And a lot of it had to do with culture and training. This is how they learned to work with those children when they were having a difficult time, right? So very often we find that when, when a new teacher comes in and is trained by existing staff, um, they're led to believe, because it's really hard. I mean, wrap your head around this for a second. It's really tough to say what leads, you know, intelligent, well-educated, um, you know, people that, you know, if you knew them personally, you might think they were thoughtful and nice. But what leads people to do things like this that can really be harmful? And, and you know, I think it, it often happens because, um, and, and there's psychological premise for this, but it happens because people come in and they're told by someone in authority, this is how we do things. And, and they proceed to uh, do things. I, I remember talking to a teacher recently who had shared with me concerns about the use of restraint seclusion in their, their school. And she went on to share those concerns with an administrator who then decided that they needed to have a meeting and bring all the other folks in, the, the behavior folks and other teachers to convince this person of why they need to use restraint seclusion. Um, and, and there was a, there was a, there was a uh, comment that she shared with me about how one of the other teachers looked at her and said, you know, it took me a while to do this. It took me about a year to wrap my head around doing this. If it takes you to a, a year to rationalize doing something like that, yeah, exactly. You, 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 your face said it all. Um, Jim Jones, anyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but but that's what happens. You get you get these cultures where where people normalize, and and unfortunately, we you know, and, and although this isn't strictly something that happens to children with disabilities, the numbers are really telling. Oftentimes, uh, I think there's a dehumanization of of people with disabilities that somehow are different or lesser, and somehow that flips a switch to allow people to do things that they may not imagine doing to another individual. And, and it's, it's, it's hard. I struggle with this. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I want to believe that most people are good and most people given, given the right, um, but uh, there are probably some, and, and unfortunately your stories, you know, echo this, there's probably some really bad players out there too. Yeah. Um, and I've studied uh, the work of Stanley Milgram and Philip Zimbardo known for the Milgram shock experiment and right. the uh, okay. prison yeah. experiment respectively. I've studied them for many years trying to figure it out. And that is how I was able to consider not accept right. that this was um, a lack of initiative instead of malice. Right. right. Um, and maybe it is the culture. But what I will say about affluent schools like mine who actively sweep um, disabled children that they traumatize under the rug by giving their parents hush money to send them to another school while it's necessary and legally their responsibility. What I will say about them is that um, the culture is wasting their money, sweeping students under the rug and uplifting kids who would be fine anywhere else as well. And yes, the situation did allow for that but they cannot call themselves one of the finest school districts in the United States if they do this, because the United Nations considers it torture. I actually, ha yeah. oh, go ahead, Tom, sorry. No, go ahead, Sam. go ahead. Um, so I was gonna reply to Jennifer uh, Mina earlier, and um, I was, you know, my mom advocated for this, you know, defined uh, outlooks for people, you know, either with disability or trauma and um find creative ways always think outside the box um and just find something that's good for your kid if they either have trauma or you know you know they went through the school and stuff and like find creative ways to 
um, do stuff and get them out into the community and like maybe they can tell their story that way or something like that and like get yourself out there and stuff. Yeah, and Sam, you've lived that, and and I know you yeah. know your mother as well. I've, I've had an opportunity to meet your mom, yeah. And and you know, I think about your photography or your, um, you, you know, your autism, um, you know, acceptance work that you've been doing. Um, really, just amazing things. And you're right. I mean, you know, um, you know, I believe that everybody has, you know, really, um, really amazing and special things about them that that um, you know but they need an opportunity. People need an yeah. opportunity to be able to shine. And, you know, yep. while people are being, uh, you know, held down, uh, that doesn't happen. And, you know, I think one of the things that always comes back to me is the importance of relationship. Um, and, you know, in terms of recovering from, from trauma. Um, and, and that certainly has been, I think a, a really strong point for you yep. know, is having that support from, from your mom and finding those things. And that, other people in my family too. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have, unfortunately, I have a teacher, also a brother, bro brother-in-law that's teaching me Photoshop and, you know, going to all these events. Like, um, Julie, I actually was going to say that you live in Philadelphia. My sister also lives in Philadelphia. The art industry there is absolutely mm. amazing because my, bro my brother-in-law is. is a graphic, graphic designer and he went to, uh, before it was called Jefferson University, he went to Philly U before mm -hmm. it was called that. And amazing. That, and like it was just you know having the outlook for art on you know mm -hmm. writing or any sorts of mm -hmm. like stuff that your kid is interested in or anybody's kid just do the stuff that they want to do and it will make their lives so much better and plus yeah. that will maybe lead into another form of education too mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know it's like magic if you it's give like magic a yeah if you yeah, give a chance like if they will if they can precisely. Yeah, and it's it not like that it's really they just can't giving them a stuff chance. that they can't do. They they mm -hmm. can achieve anything if they put their minds to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, great, uh, Tom. I know you had something to say, and before you say it, I, I I have to give you a call out in public now. I mentioned to you earlier, but that amazing shirt you have on, that Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint shirt. So there amazing you go. Shirt. There you go. That, that looks great. Uh, perfect. Um, appreciate it. Um, so what 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 did you want to comment on, Tom? Um, I just wanted to point out, whereas your story highlighted that uh, groupthink had to convince a teacher that seclusion and restraint was acceptable, um, I recently caught up, in fact, just last Thursday, caught up with a college buddy of mine um, who has a 19-year-old son who's doing quite well for himself now. Um, he's he's um, Asperger's. And uh, he's he's on his way towards independence. He's he's working. Um, he's got successful friendships, but he didn't start out that way. Um, I live in a county which is thought to be somewhat affluent. It's not the richest county in the area. I can probably tell you that. But it's Montgomery County, Maryland is is kind of up there. It's got one of the richest communities in the area. Um, they're very proud of how much money they spend on their school system. They're very proud. And you, I see you shaking your head, Julie. <laughs> um, and you can start to work there without a master's as long as you are on a course to gain a master's degree. There is nobody there who's not working towards a master's. And that's even for regular ed at, in Montgomery County. Um, that said, he told me that his son uh, was originally going to school in Montgomery County, 
was experiencing seclusion and restraint. I didn't know this. I hadn't caught up with him in years. And um, he, he had a meeting and it was so bad that he had to walk out because his anger just through the top. He could not stand in the same room with this, this woman, this administrator at the school. Um, it was funny because he told a story of the subsequent meeting where the school brought in other people to try to convince this administrator that her approach was wrong. She couldn't accept it. This cognitive dissonance was so much that it caused her to break down in tears. And after that incident, um, he took his son out of that school district, moved the whole family one county north, and hasn't had a problem since. His mm. son graduated high school, is doing very well for himself. And I had no idea that they went through all this. All I heard over the years was, well, we had some issues. But when I actually had a chance to sit down and talk to him recently, I'm like, you're kidding. And I shared my experiences with him. And it was very interesting to see how he dealt in a constructive way with the anger, which brings me to my next point. The anger, I can't imagine what it's like from a parent's point of view. Uh, my parents thought they were doing the right thing for me. Clearly, they weren't. <laughs> but I, whether it's the parents or the children, I, I don't think the children's anger is ever really, truly appreciated. And I can hear it from all of us. We all we all feel it to this day. We all struggle with it to this day. Um, I can't even deal with conflict at this point. I've, I've had jobs where... I've been told that my demeanor is too calm. I can literally have a building on fire, which has happened to me more than once. And I'm like, okay, everybody, let's get to the exit. Let's do this. And they're like, how are you so calm? I'm like, I've got two speeds. I've got calm or you don't want to see the other one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Great, great points. Dealing with that anger, and I'm glad you brought that up, Guy, because um, I imagine as a parent, it must have been particularly frustrating. Is how can you advocate if you can't get past the anger? It's difficult, and and for me, um, I had to kind of separate those two things out. And but it's a hard thing to do, um, you know. But but it's important because again. You know, and that's what we're trying to do with the alliances. We're, we're trying to influence change. We're trying to bring forward better ways of supporting kids, better ways of supporting people. Um, you know, we're trying to, of course, support laws and, 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 you know, things like the Keeping All Students Safe Act. But, you know, at the same time, we've got to, we've got to, you know, we've got to try to bring people together. I mean, we have a lot of different people in our community. Um, we've got, you know, parents of kids that have been restrained and secluded. We have self-advocates uh, like the, the the room we have here today of people that have been restrained and secluded. But we also have teachers and administrators that that want to do better or want to change things. But and, and attorneys and, and other kinds of people. And, and it really does take trying to bring people together to, to influence change because, you know, the law is not enough. The law, you know, uh, certainly support the Keeping All Students Safe Act. But it, we could put a new law in effect and not change that culture, not change the practice. And, and worse things could happen. Uh, and I say worse, it's hard to imagine much, much worse than restraint seclusion. But, you know, we, we've seen in other areas where they say, well, gee, if we can't use restraint, uh, for instance, uh, this happened in Illinois, where they said, well, if, if we can't use prone restraint, a, a deadly and dangerous form of restraint, if we can't use prone restraint, our only choice is going to be to either call the police 
or kick the kid out of our school. Okay, so that's what they, they 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 take back to parents and say, "Here are our choices. Here, what do you want to do? Uh, maybe you should maybe you should you know um, help to to stop this legislation." And 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 we'll often you know get parents on board. And you know, again, we have a lot of parents here that are that are part of our community that are that are trying to stop this. But you know, schools will try very hard to convince parents that these things are necessary. Uh, they'll go so far to say that they're therapeutic. Um, so kids are, are sometimes being restrained and secluded, uh, and parents are led to believe that not only are they necessary, they're, they're beneficial. Um, and, you know, that's really tough. We've seen, um, well, in fact, I uh, shared a story uh, just recently, uh, a really terrible story, but uh, there's a school up in Massachusetts that uses shock, uh, shock treatments on children where they will actually shock them uh, if their behavior expectations are not being met. Uh, they were stopped from doing this uh, by the FDA, and now a court has reversed that and is allowing them to shock kids. Only school in the country that, that does something like this. Um, but, you know, there are families and parents that have children that attend that school that have been led to believe that is, it is necessary. Um, and it's absolutely amazing. You know, Julie, I know you, you've got a lot of appreciation for the science, but, you know, a lot of the science that's in our schools has not evolved in, in decades. And, you know, a lot of the approaches being taken are steeped in, in classical behaviorism that was developed around working with pigeons and rats. Um, and it's about manipulating behavior, not trying to help people that are having a difficult time. So it, it is a little bit um, disheartening to, to see that many of those things are, are still being done in schools. But let, let's change gears for a minute. And, and I want to ask you, um, yeah, somebody just said state-sponsored child abuse. And, you know, I, I've said That's before. Funded. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and I've said before that, you know, um, at its best, restraint and seclusion are misguided, outdated crisis management approaches. At its worst, it becomes state-sponsored child abuse. Um, and, you know, it's it's got to change. We've got to do better. But I want to ask you all to think about a question now. Um, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, we've got, like I said, we've got parents, we've got individuals, we've got educators. Um, what I'd like to hear from you is, is what have you done to, to try to work through some of this trauma? Um, and what advice might you have for a parent of a child that has gone through this type of experience? And we can start. Okay, Julie. Uh, 13 years of cognitive behavioral therapy. I'd like to give a shout out to my therapist who is either watching right now or later. Um, uh, this, this right here is a 23-year-old woman with a driver's license, a bachelor's degree, having graduated cum loud, and is halfway done with a master's degree. And this is only because I got out in time and because I had therapy. So um, parents, I don't care what your religion says. I don't care what your grandma says. I don't care what your mom says. Send your kids straight to therapy right now because that is how you are going to get them back. Um, and make sure that their therapist is a good one. And if they don't like going to therapy, it's time to get a new therapist. It's very important that their therapist is a good one. Mm -hmm. um, but um, with all trauma, I do believe in the power of therapy, but with all things, it is a lot of trial and error. And I was lucky to have the best therapist possible the first time. So I didn't have to go around places um, and start all over and over and over again. Um, and the other thing that was really helpful was getting out of the situation to a place that would not restrain and seclude me. And um, I talked to some people who shared their stories and, you know, it just didn't register with my very cosmopolitan brain that not everyone has that option. There's not a school 45 minutes away that can take their kid and, um, and uh, not restrain and seclude them 
whether or not the school district itself will pay it or not. There, it just doesn't exist, mm -hmm. um, which is why we need legislation so that will spark a cultural change um, and make schools realize, oh, now we have to. Um, okay. Um, yeah. So what I will say is therapy. I can't really tell you what kind cognitive behavioral works for me, but there is uh, some controversy over it. It worked for me. Find what's best, but just, you know, be very proactive and support yeah. your kid throughout the way. And, and, and I'm going to take a stab in the dark, but uh, I, I'm going to make a um, assumption here that um, the therapist and the relationship with the therapist uh, probably had a lot to do with the success. Yep. It was all relationship. I mean, I, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I know all of her tricks. She knows all of mine. Um, and so, you know, there's no getting past each other, you know, it's, but we're not at a deadlock. Just, you know, I say something and I just anticipate what she's going to say. And then she says it and I'm like, Oh, never mind. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So Mental health, as um, Mina has said, is very important. And, you know, it is something that you should prioritize. And that is something that parents should encourage their children to prioritize by modeling it. Because mm. as a parent, I know that this is secondary trauma and it makes people angry. It makes people scared. And my parents have dealt with it by blocking it out and forgetting about it and not talking about it, which doesn't work for me. Mm. Um, but um, you all need to recover from this as a family because it is something that happened to your family, not just to your kid. It happened to you too. Um, and, you know, it's important for parents who weren't uh, put in a chokehold uh, not to play the victim. It's important that they don't do that, but it is important that they take care right. of themselves and show their child that they need to take care of themselves too. And they can. Fantastic. Uh, other, other thoughts, other thoughts on things that you might um, suggest to, you know, a parent or somebody that's going through this, Sam. Um, what I was going to say was try to find, like I said earlier, like try to find like creative ways. And like Julie said, yeah, just get a therapist. And like, I, even though Julie said, I'm so glad that it worked out in your favor and stuff. It's awesome. Um, if it doesn't work the first time, just keep trying. Don't give up. Like, if it doesn't work the first time, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen for like everyone, you know, in my instance, that didn't happen for me. And, um, try to find something that interests them and like think outside the box. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's all I can suggest to be totally honest. Okay, great. Uh, Mina or Tom, did you have anything to add to that? Um, yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was just, sorry. Let me, let me start off with self-reflection. And what self-reflection means is that, is that like anyone who, ha who goes through hell must reflect on themselves, especially in the past, so that they can just learn from their mistakes, learn from their past, making sure that anyone will never make the same mistakes ever again. So I've, I've heard a lot about therapists, like trying to find a therapist for what Julius mentioned. So for the advice to anyone, whether it be parents, children, <laughs> teachers, I would highly suggest or encourage writing a journal on their own, on their own, 
individually so that they will know what it's like to cope with all the trauma they have gone through most of their lives. So the reason why I have a journal with me in case if I want to express myself is because I deserve to be heard and every voice of, of a child or their parent or teacher deserve to be heard. So that way, people would understand more clearly about the trauma people have gone through. Mm -hmm. That's, That's about great. It. Okay, super. Tom, did you have anything to add? Um, I'm rather new in the process. Um, I did try over the last maybe five years to find a therapist. And I will say this, it's not always easy. Um, so yeah, I, I have to agree with everybody. Journaling is, is a good way. You need to get in touch. You need to reflect on what happened to you. Um, you were asking about how the parents should respond. I think Julie made a very good point is get the kids in therapy early. Uh, I have a bit of a background in neuroscience, even though I never got my degree and Memories encode and re-encode every time they're recalled. Um, although it's good to get someone in therapy as soon as a trauma occurs, it's never too late. Mm, um, it may just take a little bit longer. Yeah, of course not. It's never too late, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you, should, you should have heard that I've been shopping for a therapist for the last Few months and you should have heard some of them say well prepare yourself this is going to be a long road <laughs> and they found out my age and, um but the sooner the better yeah um also learn to listen learn to actively listen uh, no one listened to me when it happened to me i the only thing that stopped me from being locked in the quiet room as they called it um was I went to get on the bus one day, and I don't even remember being locked in the quiet room that day, but I went to get on the bus that day, and I I blacked out most of the day. That's the first time I recall actually blacking out or being aware of it. And um, the bus driver took one look at me and asked, Tom, what's wrong? First person to actually take an interest. Mm -hmm. um, you think my parents would, um, but they were conditioned to see the situation in the way that they had been viewing it for the last several years, trying to fight for me and trying to um, advocate for me, they saw it in a certain way. So you need to listen and you need to actively listen, you know, repeat back what's mm -hmm. being said, what the kid's saying. If you don't understand it, ask somebody, talk to mm -hmm. a professional. Um, because, you know, even though I could articulate what was going on, uh, Nobody really listened. And that day I told the bus driver, I just want it all to end. I don't mm -hmm. care how, I'd rather be dead than to keep going through this. I just want it all to end. And I think I was 11 years old. They did the right thing. They pulled me off the bus, had me wait in the office, didn't leave me alone for a minute until my parents came to pick me up. My parents were instructed that I could not return to school until I was cleared by a doctor. You would mm -hmm. think that that means take your kid to a, psychologist or a psychiatrist 
No, they took me to the pediatrician who asked, you're not going to hurt yourself now, are you, Tommy? Mm -hmm. And of course, I was scared out of my mind at this point because I, I, all of a sudden people were listening. I didn't know how to respond. So I was like, no, no, no. So be aware that how you frame it with the children will make a difference in how they respond. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not accustomed to telling you things under pressure and we can often frame things in a way that we're telling them what we want to hear mm. and that can make a huge difference because all they ever ask me is you're not going to hurt yourself are you nobody mm. asks why do you feel sad right, right. yeah great 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 points and um it, it's so important to to be heard and i think that's you know uh, one of the one of the big problems that that often happens in many school environments is that we're doing things to kids we're not working with them they're not listening i mean again that's why i like approaches where we collaborate with kids and and understand where they're coming from uh, great points all, all great points um so i, I want to be mindful of time we're we're at about an hour and 20 minutes and i promise you i think about an hour and a half at the most actually i probably said an hour and 20 minutes but um i'll go a little bit longer if we can um, and I want to give anybody that is watching live now an opportunity if you have any questions or have any comments. I mean, th these are very uh, brave individuals coming here and sharing their story. Uh, if you have any comments, feel free to put those in the chat as well. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask a couple of a uh, couple more questions, but uh, this is a really good time if you do have questions or comments to put those in the chat and, and we'll try to get to a few of those as well. So I uh, want to circle around to... Um, the Keeping All Students Safe Act. So one of the, the problems we talked about earlier was the fact that there are no protections for kids in school regarding restraints and seclusions at a federal level. It is only a state-by-state -state, uh, situation. And, and again, not all states are created equally. Some have stronger laws, some have weaker laws, but even those that have stronger laws are often not doing um, much better. So the Keeping All Students Safe Act, uh, which was reintroduced um, in May, and there have been efforts to pass laws for a long time. I mean, over, over 10 years now. Um, hopefully there's an opportunity now to get this moving forward. Uh, the law would prohibit the use of seclusion. It would prohibit prone and supine restraint. It would add in, um, you know, training requirements and, and uh, you know, to help people to get uh, different ways of, of working with supporting with kids. Um, it is not the end, uh, end of the answer here, um, but it is certainly a step in the right direction and a very strong step in, in the right direction. Um, let's take this as an opportunity. And, and Julie, I'll start with you just because I'm going around in a circle and it's hard to, for me to break a pattern. Um, but if you have an opportunity right now to, to tell a senator or representative why they should support the Keeping All Students Safe Act, um, what might you tell them? Why, why do you think it's important that people support this um, you know, in, in trying to change things. So I, I know I put you, put you on the spot there. Okay, I, I have I, confidence in I, you. I've written these letters before. Um, okay. uh, too many kids have died. Kids die and they die. Uh, their deaths are taxpayer funded and that's not okay. And I don't understand why that's okay with some people, especially senators who are also taxpayer funded. Um, and what I will say, um, some of the one flaw that some of the comments did uh, point out about uh, CASA is that um, it will still allow it for uh, extremely uh, what is perceived to be, um, hold on, what did they say? Um, uh, serious imminent danger. And uh, that is very relative and very subjective and that's dangerous. But um, 
it is in fact the first step. Um, and it is the force that many school districts are going to need to realize that they can't get away with this anymore. Now they're going to uh, they're going to keep pretending that four foot eight, nine year old girls are serious, imminent danger. But there is going to be. Right, right, right. But after that, their parents can actually sue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say to senators and representatives that we need this law and we need it now, because right now those children have no rights. Mm-hmm. And those children are American citizens. Their parents are taxpayers and they're going to be taxpayers, too, if they live to see the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And, and I, I, well, I do want to revisit, you know, this thought of imminent serious physical harm. That, that's the standard that we have here in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And when I first began advocating around this, people would say, well, we're not. What's imminent serious physical harm mean? Uh, yeah. The truth is, it does have a definition and, mm-hmm. and the definition follows along with the definition of serious bodily injury. It is a life or death situation. It is not a kick, a bruise, a bite, a scratch. It mm-hmm. is a life or death situation. Now, unfortunately, I live in a state that, of course, has that in our law. And yet my son was once secluded for splashing water, uh, not a life or death situation. So you're absolutely right that, that and, and uh, Mickey, uh, Mickey Marinelli brought this up in, in her uh, uh, comment here as well, that every restraint her son uh, was due to serious imminent harm. Um, you know, I would ask if that really was a life or death situation. Many times they're not. And, and many times, of course, the the staff are escalating the situation rather than de-escalating the situation. And, and in fact, I've even heard about people escalating kids um, through through in, intentionally. Um, but again, you know, even pushing another kid was serious imminent danger. I would disagree. Um, now, Mickey, <laughs> I'm disagreeing with you on, on the, the idea that it shouldn't be considered imminent serious physical harm. Uh, that really should be a, a life or death standard. And, and I think that that's another issue that they, we would have even with CASA now. Um, it certainly is a step in the right direction, but we need to be very clear this is not something that should be done, um, you know, any form of restraint. And, and of course, I believe that all seclusion should go away, which, which CASA would hopefully do. Uh, I, I believe that the majority of restraint should go away as well. I would like to see a restraint-free world in terms of school. I, I do think we could get there. But at the same time, I understand the concern around really, truly a life or death situation. And if my child is, this is what you hear commonly, well, what if a child's going to jump in front of traffic? Well, absolutely. I want you to wrap your arms around that child and protect their life. That that shouldn't require restraint training. That should require sense. Um, you know, so anyway, um, but you, you're absolutely right about that. Um, Mina, what do you think? What would you want to tell a lawmaker about why they should support the Keeping All Students Safe Act? Good question. So if I were to reach out to the U.S. senators and and U.S. representatives, I would say this. The reason why the U.S. senators and U.S. representatives should support the Keeping All Students Safe Act is because not only there may be statistics that could possibly prove the number of restraints and seclusion, but also like how how the how it goes after being restrained and acquired. And uh, I just feel that restraints and quiet rooms are deemed dangerous because they could actually make things worse. And Absolutely. they could actually worsen the behavior of every child in school. So I would I would say that the reason, and I feel that the reason why that restraint and quiet rooms should be banned from schools ever used is because I feel that every child is vulnerable. And even in schools, 
whether it be private or public schools. So I feel that every child who is vulnerable has the right to speak up and share their story and, and share their story, not only with their parents, but also to the U.S. Senator, to, to the U.S. Senators and U.S. Representatives whenever they feel possible, like getting out of their comfort zone whenever they feel comfortable speaking up. And I feel that speaking up, whether it be through journaling or by voice to be heard is, is rather, I, is I rather, is, is which I rather feel encouraging. So that way people, the whole world would understand that the hell that children have gone through throughout their lives in the past. Just to remind the world that restraint is in seclusion, seclusion, whether it be quiet rooms, like will not be tolerated and will never be used from schools ever again. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. And, you know, I, I think there, there's there's a lot of progress to be made, not just with restraint seclusion in schools, but how we treat children overall. And, and I think that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of legacy of children being treated pretty poorly, children being treated you know, as, as subhuman, I mean, the, as a possession to, to, um, you know, to, to govern rather than as an individual to help grow. Um, and, you know, it, it breaks my heart to know so many of the things that happen to kids. Uh, and, and there's a huge power differential, you know, between the adult and, and the child. Um, all, all great points. Um, Sam, what would you, what would you like to tell, you know, your, your Senator or representative? Um, what I would like to say to, you know, the U.S. representatives or the U.S. senators is every child has the right to have their voices heard. Okay. And um, I, I, honestly, I agree with everyone else is just like, you know, you gotta, <laughs> I honestly don't know what to say because that's like a mouthful to be totally honest. Like, I don't know what to say to them to be totally honest, but like what I have to say is every child should not, you know, they should be treated the same. Mm -hmm. And, um, just, they should just be treated the same. It's just, it's yeah. just reality. It's just right. what it is. And, and what happened to you shouldn't happen. Keep No, it shouldn't other, happen right? to anyone no. else. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a part of this where it, it's very simple. It's like, what's the right thing to do? Yeah. Does, does it make sense to put a six-year-old kid in a padded room and hold the door shut? Five-year-old kid. <laughs> right, right. Does, does that make sense? Um, does it make, yeah. make sense to, to put a seven-year-old on the floor in a prone restraint? No. I, I, I think it all comes down to morals. Right. And, like, what are your morals? Are you going to allow this to happen once more, twice, mm -hmm. even seven times to ten times a day? Right, and right, right. It all comes down the morals and like and of the U.S. senators and teachers and like people that want to um, change this. Just have your voices be heard. Speak into uh, speak to U.S. representatives or uh, senators, mm -hmm. and have your voices be heard. Just absolutely. I, that's absolutely. How I highly advocate for that. Great. Thank, thanks, Sam. Uh, Tom, uh, I, I know we share state uh, senators. Uh, you have a, a different congressional representative, but what would you like to say to your your representatives? Well, um, first of all, I'd like to point out uh, 
kind of showing my age a little bit, I, I, I would say that there's a, a song that would be perfect soundtrack for talking to them, which is, you remember Pet Benatar's very controversial song, Hell is for Children? <laughs> remember that? Uh, I, I don't uh, really, because I'm 23, but I love me the classic rock and yeah. That's, that's, that's you're gonna let you do it when we're done, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that would make a good soundtrack. I would also inform them that um, I have friends who are in healthcare. I have friends who are physicians. I have friends who are nurses. And a nurse friend who works at Shock Trauma up in Baltimore, Maryland, recently told me something that I was totally unaware of. Um, children often come into emergency departments. Uh, we call them ERs, you and I, but. They call them EDs. I don't know. It's a language difference. But um, they often present in an emotionally dysregulated state. They often present uh, having just recently experienced trauma or just for whatever reason being in a dysregulated state. That happens frequently in emergency departments. Um, apparently, it's been known for a very long time that you never apply physical restraints to children, especially um, around in their preteen years, like 10 or so. And the reason why you don't do it is there is an overwhelming amount of research which shows that it's not only traumatic, but it can also lead to further trauma and very poor outcomes, regardless of whatever they were presenting for in the ED that day. Um, so this is not anything new. I mean, there is no shortage of evidence. Um, you won't like the alternative, what the ED does, but if they absolutely cannot talk the child down, cannot help them regulate themselves, um, they use chemical restraints because as horrible as it sounds, yeah, I know, but as horrible as it sounds, chemical restraints when done properly do not cause uh, the kind of further trauma that can lead to long-term conditions like post-traumatic stress or chronic stress disorder. Um, I would point that out to lawmakers. I, I point out just what you guys have been saying is that there are standards on the state level, but that doesn't mean that the individual uh, school districts are following them and everybody defines those standards differently. So if we had a law on a national level, not only would it be beneficial for guidance, but once you have a federal law, the Department of Education can issue guidance on what those means. They can issue definitions. They can tell school districts what constitutes um, imminent harm. Mm -hmm. And that can be tied to funding because that's that's a very important thing. And that's one reason why a lot of states don't like to accept these laws is because they realize it can be tied to funding. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be done so with another law. These departments, like the Department of Interior, the Department of Education, they have the right to administer programs. And most of it is advisory. But um, it does carry a little bit more weight. Uh, we can see that in standardized test results and how serious school districts have taken those over the years, whether for better or for worse. Um, so, yeah, I point out the two things, the extraordinary amount of data in other realms, such as 
the medical fields mm -hmm. that shows that seclusion and restraint is very, very harmful uh, and leads to a very poor prognosis long term, especially this, especially in preteen kids where they're still forming their concept of self. Mm -hmm. um, and I would point out that uh, having a law at the federal level gives them the ability to identify to further define these terms in a way that can take the ambiguity away from the states, which can actually protect the states from claims. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, once I started opening my eyes and saw how many children actually do die, and it, it's, yeah, wow, it's, it's amazing. I had no idea so many children died. I have a friend who told me two years ago that her good friend's son tried to hang himself in a seclusion room here in Montgomery County mm -hmm. two years ago. Yeah, that, that happened in, in uh, Georgia. In fact, uh, Jonathan King, a young man, hung himself in a, in a seclusion room. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, those things happen. Uh, well, I appreciate your, your um, input on that. And, and I would encourage you all, if you haven't already, um, not just our... our our um, panel, but but others that are watching, if you haven't already, you know, please do reach out to your your lawmakers. And, and for those of you on the panel, if you want to, you know, arrange a meeting with your lawmaker, I'd be happy to join you on a on a call with your lawmaker. Um, you know, we, we've got to do this, and um, you know, I I think it's really important that they hear your your voices. So I want to go over a couple of comments here before we wrap things up. Um, you know, <laughs> I think we could go on for a while, but a couple of comments that I want to hit. Um, one we have here from Mona Della Hook, and Dr. Mona Della Hook is a uh, amazing uh, child psychologist that wrote a book called Beyond Behaviors, which sits right behind me here um, and is luckily within reach. Um, uh, Beyond Behaviors is a fantastic book um, that that really addresses, you know, how do we how do we better support kids? How do we move beyond just looking at the behaviors to understanding the, the problems and where behavior is coming from? Really amazing uh, work. In fact, I was fortunate enough to attend a, a live event with her recently, uh, a masterclass that she offered, just amazing. But she said, thank you for sharing your stories. You are all uh, the true experts. Uh, and as a provider, I value every word that you speak. You. And I can assure you that, that absolutely. Um, thank you, you so know, much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, so Chantel um, said, thank you for sharing. Uh, I'm sorry for the difficult things that you have all endured, but I hope this healing and uh, this is healing in some way uh, for you as well. Um, and, and as do I, I mean, it, it's such an honor to have you all join us here tonight. And, and I hope that, you know, that there is a, a sense of healing and power in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what you're doing in, in this time is is influencing change. Um, your voices and your stories are, are being heard. And, and thank yeah. you so much for doing that. Um, another thank you. Uh, thank you, Julie, Jennifer, Tom, and Sam. Uh, your sharing is powerful and uh, surely changes will follow in small and big ways. You know, thank you. Um, somebody else was sharing their experience um, of having their seven-year-old restrained on several occasions this year. Um, last time uh, restrained, um, put marks on. Um, and we certainly see a lot of that. Also an interesting comment here from Darlene and, and great point that a lot of restraint seclusion comes from ableism. Um, you know, yep. she talks about how her sister works as a para, uh, says she couldn't mm -hmm. function without it. Uh, however, everyone that I know that supports restraint and seclusion has an authoritarian <laughs> tendencies. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh -huh. it's, it's 
you know, the, the same problem that, that is happening in, in many schools, and I say many because there are certainly schools that, that do an f- amazing job and really are supportive of kids, but we often see the compliance-based approaches, mm. whether it's in schools or in law enforcement. And, and, and what are the issues that, that that leads to? It leads to restraint. It leads to seclusion. It leads to people dying. Um, and, and sometimes... Um, it's all for it's all for for nothing. I mean, it's it's yeah. minor yeah. power struggles that turn into uh, death, and and you know it's 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 horrendous. Um, let's see what else we have here. Another um, thing, I'd, um, I'm sorry, guy. I'd like to say about um, restraint and seclusion coming from ableism, authoritarian tendencies, and fear of people with disabilities is that. Um, a lot of people are associating um, restraint seclusion in special ed. Um, Tom and I were both misplaced in mm-hmm. um, a special ed situation that, you know, even still was doing it way wrong. So not only was it wrong for us, but they were doing it wrong for everyone. Um, and so with my my issue was um, my uh, third grade teacher had a very wrong idea in her head about what disability was uh, for me. She and everyone else after that treated me like I had a disability that everyone told them that I didn't have and they didn't listen. And so that is ableism for you. And that's why we need to make this great big block before they keep doing this. Because once once they know that they can't restrain seclude anymore, maybe they can figure out why. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of nice comments here. Uh, another uh, thank you from uh, Mickey Marinelli. Uh, another great comment here. Yeah, thank you for all your bravery. You're making this world safer for people like my son. And, and absolutely, I think that there there is power in, in what you're doing here tonight and sharing your stories. And I want to thank you. Thank you all so much for doing this. But before we wrap up, I just want to give you kind of a, an opportunity to have a last word. Was there anything that you didn't get to say tonight that you'd like to say um, or uh, anything else? And uh, Julie, um, I know you're still thinking because I know you're thinking face by now. It's, it's so I'll great to be able to see you. Me, okay? okay, I'll come back to you. Uh, how about Tom? Do you, do you have any final words? Um, just that I, I'm very grateful for everyone having a voice now. Like I said, when I went through this, the only other people I knew who went through this were nonverbal autistic. And, and I, I, I even had a chance to run into one of them. Uh, when I managed the movie theater, his parents had taken that out of his group home to go to a movie for the day. That was their day. And I walked up to him and he was somewhat verbal when I knew him before, but as an adult in his mid forties, he was no longer verbal, which is really bad. Um, I walked up to him and knowing that he wouldn't reply, I still said, great to see you, you know, Phil and it's Tom. And, and I talked to him just as I talked to any old friend and his parents were so puzzled and they looked at me quizzically. And I, I said, yeah, I I was in class with your son and their eyes just bugged out. And (laughs) that, that was interesting. That was very interesting. So I'm glad people have a voice. And I hope one day when I get my own head straight, I can be a voice for others. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And, you know, when I um, it's really isolating uh, to go through this. When I started the Alliance, one of the reasons I started it was because I wanted to I wanted people to know that we're going through this, that they weren't alone. 
um, and that they could do things to affect change. You know, um, you know, I used to always say, I'm just the dad, you know, I'm just the dad, um, you know, that, that this happened to, to us and, and my son. Um, and, and we do, we do have a lot of power to influence change. And, and, and I look at all of your faces and I'm so glad to have you involved in this because I think you all have that, that power to make change, but it really sometimes Tom is just helpful in the beginning to, to know that there's other people that understand what you've been through. Other people that have, have shared that experience, um, even though we, we certainly would wish it upon nobody else, it, it's it's so reassuring to know that others understand what we've been through, and I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Bill. Well, 35 years, I had no idea. I, I thought the only other people who had experienced it were like my nonverbal classmates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, non-speaking, um, you know, autistics are are very commonly subjected to this, and you know, we know that even 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 kids that are able to share their experience might not for a number of reasons. You know, kids kids don't want to come home and say, "Guess what? I got thrown in the naughty room," or "Guess what? I got thrown into yeah, I say Jewish. yeah." Um, or sometimes kids assume the kids think, "Well, you're my parent. You know everything that happens." The teacher probably called you and told you. Um, kids assume that parents know everything, so there's a lot of reasons why parents might not know even even beyond you know children that are unable to to speak and share what happened um you know a lot of kids that can might not because uh they're ashamed they, they you know it, it affects their own self-esteem um sam any final thoughts you want to share well i would like to thank you all and everyone in this live stream um what we are doing right now and making our voices heard and stuff, I think it's a really, really important thing to have that, uh, just to have an outlook or an outreach to people that, that so we can tell our stories. And thank you guys, Stevens, for um, having me here and everyone else here and uh, telling our stories and stuff is really important uh, to what we're doing right now. So. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much. And, and just call me Guy. You don't need the Stevens. I get confused. <laughs> I, guy I was like, who's he talking? Oh, that's me. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. All right, Mina. I just want to say thank you to you, Guy, the Alliance Against Inclusion and Restraint, and to everyone who is here today, or should I say tonight, for having this entire conversation and I'm just really glad that I am not alone anymore. I've heard like anyone had go through the same hell as I did in the past. So I just want to like, you know, again, appreciate like you getting and getting involved into this conversation and, and just just in it for social change and what need and what needs to be done, like for a better future. So that way no one will ever have to go through the same hell over and over again, such as trauma itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. Thank, thank you so much. And and just to let you know, too, um, this is, of course, being recorded and uh, will be available on our Facebook page, on our YouTube channel. Uh, we'll actually even make the audio available as an audio podcast. So uh, not only you, but anybody out there listening, I would encourage you to share it with others. Um, you know, we want to share this, this wide and, and get people to realize why this is so important. So this will live on past the night and, and hopefully we'll get lots of people hearing this message. Um, Julie, so yeah. we're back to you. It's good that it's recorded because I, I told a lot of people that they need to come and they said that they're hoping that it'll be able to, they'll be able to watch it later. So they will, good. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I just wanna repeat what everyone just said that I am so, so grateful to have this opportunity. So grateful that um, I'm not the only one 
Um, so grateful for Guy who started this for having me here. And I feel like I've been waiting for this day for over over 13 years. I've been waiting for this day. Um, and with all things better late than ever, um, but uh, with this bill, better never than at all. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. let's pass this bill and let's stop restraining and secluding kids and stop killing them and stop ruining their lives. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Julie. And, and, and Julie, Jennifer, uh, Mina, uh, Tom and, and Sam, I just want to say again, um, you know, thank you so much for, for doing this tonight. Um, you know, thank you so much for opening up and sharing your thank stories you. and, 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 you know, going out there to make a difference. Um, I do want to let you know, again, if, if you want to have a meeting with your, you know, congressman's office or senator's office, I'd be happy to join any of you for that, that meeting. Uh, also invite you. Amazing. Yeah, I'm happy to. And, 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 you know, Sam, Sam has actually recently joined our team as a volunteer. Um, we're excited to have Sam joining the team, but I'll open that invitation to, to all of you. Uh, you know, Julie, you know, Mina, Tom, if you're interested in helping out, shoot me an email and we'll figure out a way. Um, I, I know you're all busy and, and, you know, with, with school and other priorities, but um, always welcome you and welcome you to, to share your voice with, uh, with our community. So thank you so much. Uh, we had a couple more thank yous here, but uh, lots of people just, you know, very thankful for your time and sharing your experiences. Um, really, really, really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, uh, Julie, I'm sorry it took 13 years to, to, to do this. Uh, I'm glad we were able to do it. Um, you know, you guys are amazing, all of you. Um, so thank you. And again, share this with, uh, you know, share this with others. Um, and I hope to, to find ways to continue to work with you all um, as we're moving forward. Um, but thank you for taking this step. And thank you to everybody that's watching here tonight. Uh, again, you know, share this with, with your you friends so and, and teachers and others. So thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. You. Bye. Thanks. Bye.